Well, good morning, church family. Let's try that again as I get my water. Good morning, church family. I, sh- I have to do this with the kids. I don't. shouldn't have to do this with y'all. I should have brought my rope. Line. Thank you. I was just checking if you were paying attention. Well, for those that don't know me, um, I'm John Clovisher. I'm not one of the pastors here. Um, but I have the honor of serving with Bay Area chaplains at the Contra Costa County Jails um, and uh, minister to those who are incarcerated. Well, do I have any Narnia fans in here? Oh, a few. Quite a few. Wow. Well, l- l- let's do, a, let's do a, a quiz. What did the beaver say about Narnia? Anyone remember? No. It's always what? Always winter and never, never Christmas. That's right, because the white witches reign. It's always winter and never Christmas. Well, I'm going to try to reverse that today because we're going to have Christmas today. Because we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 2. And there's three, two questions actually I'd, I'd like us to consider as we look at Luke chapter 2 today and celebrate Christmas here in May. By the way... It feels like winter. I don't know what's going on outside, but it's a bit chilly. But two questions. As we read the text, as we talk about the text, who's really in charge? And secondly, where do we see God's glory? So if you're in Luke chapter 2, please stand with me as I read. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds, some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with, a, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on peace, uh, and on, I'm sorry, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at, at things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as they've been told. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you have done, for what we have just read about, God. This story, this story that we often only celebrate once a year, and yet it ought to be something we reflect on and think on and meditate on and study every day. So God, I pray as we turn and discuss and consider uh, what you have revealed here um, through Luke, that we might indeed know you better, God, know the depth at which you went to come here to be with us, God, that we might love you better and follow you better for your sake. Amen. Please be seated. So in verses 1 through 5, we, we see the, essentially the context or the global context of Jesus' birth. And it's, it's in the context of Rome. And, and in, in every sense, Rome was what we might consider the great superpower there in, uh, just before the first century and into the first century and on. And this is particularly true for the common citizen of Rome, let alone a poor Jewish family. So in the eyes of the citizenry, what Rome decreed, what they said you must do, well, they would just assume that was what the whole world would follow. And Luke introduces the narrative, he pointing out a decree that it was issued under the reign of Caesar Augustus. And not unlike today, a registration or a census is, a, is, um, is largely for tax purposes. Um, the taxation of citizenry in ancient times it was, is relegated to agents. Uh, they were known as publicans or simply tax collectors. Um, and there was normally, those were the ones that were, uh, there were those that were directly uh, contracted by the Roman government. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 19, the chief uh, tax collector, Zacchaeus, is an example. And what Zacchaeus would do is he would probably hire others, people, others that would do the actual collecting for him. And with little oversight, um, they were held in the lowest esteem. They were considered like uh, as low as prostitutes in that time. Uh, because their practices were just, they were just so corrupt. In fact, it's well documented, the two most hated practices uh, in Rome uh, there in the first century were tax collecting and crucifixion. Yet it was both of these sovereign practices in Rome, especially for the everyday citizen, the poor, that established Roman dominion. In this narrative, the, the term registration, it's repeated as, you'll see it both uh, translated as registration and or census, it's repeated four times. And it's to emphasize that the picture that we have here, the picture of Mary and Joseph having to go to Bethlehem, it's under the sovereign hand of Rome and upon its citizens, the greatest power in the known world. Now, the Roman emperor that we see there, Caesar Augustus, he was actually the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Um, he came to become actually the first Roman emperor in 27 BC. He reigned until 14 AD. Augustus was the name that was given to him upon his assumption of power. He added, uh, it was added to his, the name Caesar. This is the name that he got from his adoptive, uh, adoptive father. But this name is more like a title where Augustus is. Uh, it, it literally means majestic or great. And it's not far to say that this title itself meant to convey the idea of glory or glorious. And it was during his reign that the idea of Roman peace, Pax Romana, um, was ushered in. In fact, a term that was, it was 
basically interchangeable uh, was Pax Augusta um, because he was the one who ushered in this, this Roman peace and meant to convey that those who found themselves under the, uh, the grace is, is probably not far off from saying, at least in their, their idea, the grace of Roman power, that they would see a lack of conflict with rivals and the great infrastructure of Rose. There was many things that were good about what Rome did, and that would be a place to peacefully thrive. But also, while the, ta- uh, the title emperor carried uh, an understanding of sovereign, the, umper- the uh, uh, Roman emperor also carried the title of savior. It's soter in Greek. It's where we get the idea of soteriology or the study of salvation is this Greek word soter. But that was, that was often um, uh, given to the emperor as one of their titles. Now Israel, on the other hand, where are they? They're subject to Rome. They've been free from exile for over 500 years. Yet they experienced little sovereignty in those 500 years. And Judah is what is known as a client kingdom in Rome. This is where Herod the Great, as the current client king, is one that's simply chosen by Rome at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, bear with me. This is Memorial Day, and I'm going to use military illustrations. I might have a bias. But one of the most sovereign places, even in the modern age, is the military ship. Any former Navy Coast Guard in here? All right, excellent. You know all about that, right? Thank you for your service. The military, uh, the military ship, it has a, there's a special need to maintain good order and discipline. They have a mission to complete. They can't have nonsense going on. They, ha- they must have discipline. One of the offenses for shipboard pers- personnel um, is missing movement. You don't want to miss movement. <laughs> it's the one thing that gets ingrained in you when you port aboard or, or first report aboard a ship. And what this basically meant is you arrived for work late and the ship was gone. You missed movement. It's as simple as that. And this usually resulted in punishment, sovereignly issued by the ship's captain. In my day, which was admittedly just a few years ago, you could expect to lose at least one rank for this infraction. There was also no excuse good enough to avoid going to captain's mast. We were told if you miss movement, your excuse better be that you were dead. So to avoid this, you did everything in your power to arrive well before liberty expired. Well, one day, yours truly, I was very junior. It was my first, my first tour out of boot camp, my first ship. I, I, I left in plenty of time to arrive. Liberty was going to expire at uh, 0600. That's 6 a.m. for y'all, y'all. When the ship was getting underway at 6, 0645, and by the way, liberty expiring, that just means that's when you're supposed to show up at work. That morning, with about 15 minutes of drive left, at 5.30, traffic stopped cold. You know that cold sweat? That, that like, panic feel that you get? I, I, I think I was 19 years old at the time. I, I still remember this. Well, traffic cleared by about, six, about 6.30. I fortunately made it before the ship got underway and avoided the wrath of the sovereign hand of the chain of command, but I admit I did this by being less fearful of the sovereign hand of the highway patrol. When I consider the status of Joseph and Mary, though, when we think of that as a poor Jewish family 
in the sovereign rule of Rome. You can imagine how submitting to that sovereign hand, it, it wouldn't be questioned. It would be necessary for them to travel, even while expecting back to Bethlehem. And the detail of the couple's journey in verse 4 is important because it reminds us God's way vice our ways. In particular, read the journey led them to what? The city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, this didn't, never stuck out to me. I had to do some research and studying and, and remind, be reminded that the, the idea of city of David as a phrase, if it just stood on its own, would actually direct a first century reader to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5, we read that David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. Je- the Jebusites had, no, uh, had said to David, you will never get here, even if a blind, even if even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get here. Yet David did capture the stronghold of the city, that is, the city of David. So here on the eve of the first century, if Luke would have simply stated the city of David, Jerusalem would have been what people would assume. Jerusalem was, the, it was political, it was the um, religious hub, center in Israel, it, in Judah, both before they went into exile and when they returned to exile. This was the center of where, where God said that he would uh, reside among them. And even, bef- uh, even under Roman rule, this was the place God's glory would be anticipated to come, come to the temple as they would continue to prepare. The Ark of the Covenant was not there, but they would continually do the sacrifices, anticipating that God was, was present. And both 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 make it clear that the throne of God's king will one day be in Jerusalem. The son of David, who the angel promised to marry, to Mary would be her son, will reign forever from that throne. It is a promise. But do you ever get the sense that God is unaware and if he would just intervene in the way we expect, things would be much better? You're supposed to nod your heads. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one. (laughs) If God would understand our situation, he would answer that prayer in a different way. Shield us from adversity or give us the desire of our heart. This intentional use of the city, David, seems to help remind us how God's salvation must work. In fact, only, we only have to turn to the Gospel of Matthew and see that the priests and scribes, they knew well that where? Where would, where would the Messiah come from? In Micah 5.2, where it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Yet Luke is is being very intentional here. He's developing comparisons the whole way through in this narrative of what might make sense to us. And more accurately, those expecting the salvation of God and how God's salvation must come about. It's a bit of a a bait and switch here by calling Bethlehem, Bethlehem the city of David. And this would likely jog the memory banks of Israel's king, kingship, and specifically David's kingship. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, Israel, what do they want? They want a king. But they don't just want any king. They want a king that will make them like the other nations. They're, they're essentially direct, uh, directly rejecting God as their king. This is what Yahweh says back to them. They're, rejecting, they're not rejecting um, 
uh, you, Samuel, they're rejecting me as the true king. They are granting, and God grants them their wish. He gives them Saul. He's selected as the king that reflects their heart's desires. You know, Saul in, in 1 Samuel 9, he was a choice and handsome man. And there was no one more hands, a handsome person than he <clears throat> among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. <clears throat> but what God, <clears throat> excuse me, but what God did desire and ultimately bring about, <clears throat> it would be a king after God's heart. 1 Samuel 16, God says concerning Saul, vice the, the eventual choosing of David, do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature because I rejected him. For God sees not man, uh, I'm sorry, for God does not see as man sees, for man looks where? At the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at what? The heart. David is God's choice despite being short, <laughs> the youngest, and thus the lowest rank of his family from the unassuming town of Bethlehem because it ultimately points us to God's real king. Luke's gospel has already shown us his sovereign, sovereign choice of the barren Elizabeth and betrothed and virgin Mary, both unexpected, but not out of line with God's redeeming character. God is fully aware of our hearts is really at the core of this and knows the kind of king, the kind of savior that we need and how we must sovereignly bring him into this world. Jesus enters the world just as he must. Here, while the details of the birth are few, they are significant and demonstrate just who is in charge. Now, some dramatizations will tend to embellish the story of, of uh, the birth in Bethlehem. We might see a heartless innkeeper refuses to allow them inside. Or like many of our nativities, and by the way, my wife loves nativities. I think we're up to 20. And yes, she puts the shepherd, I'm mean, sorry, the wise men in a different place than the, than the actual birth, but that's for, that's for another day. Um, this does not convey a rejection because Joseph, he belonged in this hometown. And this is an honored culture that obligates the hospitality of some accommodation. And the animal area was often uh, attached to a house and it could very well have been cleaned up, likely provided sufficient accommodation, though it was far from ideal. But, what, but regardless of all that, what this is referring, this is referring to a family home, maybe it's a guest hat room, a public inn potentially, it doesn't change the main point. In fact, the grand paradox of what this story is about is that the infinite God is indwelling a baby, becoming human. This is vast enough dilemma for our finite minds. But further, the God who created all things simply does not impose what would be his rightful, eternal, inherent privilege. Yeah, he could get any room he wanted. Instead, he humbles himself to be birthed in a way that requires an animal feeding trough as his cradle. God's salvation comes with no pretense other than to provide that salvation. This, along with the more routine practice of swaddling a baby, just shows us how Jesus was indeed human. Nothing lacked in his dispendence as a baby, as he was like any infant who required parental care. In every sense, this picture here, it's not unlike us in, in, in his humanity. He shares the lot with all of us. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2 how it, it was in every respect he was made like us. Everything that he experienced 
from his birth in the cradle to his temptations to his death on the cross experienced it on our behalf was that he might be perfected be perfected as a savior that we indeed need. When Luke states the shepherds kept keeping watch, his use of the same region is a way of uh, causing us to realize that this God's providence, providence is at hand here. He's in charge. And here the, the shepherds represent two important factors, and one is that link back to David. Origins in Bethlehem, his beginnings as a humble shepherd himself, the one that no one thought, no, we'll just keep him with the shepherds. He won't be considered to be a king. And Jesus as our permanent good shepherd. Secondly, and more overtly, the shepherds are a surprising recipient of this message from heaven. They represent the lack of pretense and privilege. As one commenter says, there is no more normal Joes in ancient culture than shepherds. And verse 9, in contrast of what is transpiring in the town of Jesus' birth, is that the angel appearing comes with what? God's glory. The manifestation of God's glory. And understandably, what are the shepherds? They, they're frightened. <laughs> Why? Because glory has to do with the revelation of one's nature. Has anyone seen a naked baby? Oh, how did they get naked? And they won. Well, what do we see? We see them in all their what? Glory. No one's ever used that phrase? See a naked baby? There they are in all their glory. Okay. I see a few heads nodding. So we see something for what it is. And here the Greek word, the doxa, it means brilliance, brightness. While the, while the, um, the Hebrew word kavod, it actually has the idea of weight, significance. And there's really no way to encapsulate God's grand significance. So any sight of his glory would be, yes, overwhelming. And in all these incidences where heavenly messengers, which are angels, appear, the weight of God's infinite importance is at least partly visible. We ought to be frightened. And here the glory of the Lord is also associated with the tabernacle and temple. While nothing, again, can truly contain or wholly demonstrate God's entire being, God's presence was often manifested as a cloud. And this cloud was potent. It was deadly, really, with the glory of God's majesty. No one could be present in that cloud. Moses himself could not enter the tabernacle, at least at these times, as, we, as, as Exodus 40 says. Then the cl- uh, cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Yet this experience has been absent since the return of Israel from exile. The manifestation of God's glory as seen in the tabernacle and temple never return. Now, to be sure, this does not mean that God was not present. But the manifestation of his glory had not been seen in the temple in Jerusalem since its rebuilding. So as with Zechariah and Mary, they are told not to be afraid because they are the surprising but the very intentional recipients of evangelism by the angels The first sign is not given to a ruling class, the government, the priestly, Pharisees, Sadducees, those who may even have a birthright to know, but to shepherds, to those who are are in their lives subject to those who would expect to be first, find out. 
And not only are the shepherds the first to be evangelized by the angels after Jesus' birth, they themselves evangelize in this account, announcing what they see. Now, evangelism in the first century is the announcement, it's an announcement of, of, of significance, something grand. The birth of a rightful heir, for instance, could be, uh, in a, uh, there could be the evangelism of the birth of a rightful heir. Or when someone ascends to the throne, um, this could be uh, something that is evangelized, told about. Uh, the, the victory over an enemy could be evangelized. Someone, a message would be sent. Victory is here. Victory is at hand. And evangelism can simply be translated as declaring good news. It's the same word where we get our word gospel. Gospel and good news are the same. What we witness here, and there was no pun intended with witness. Evangelism witness? No? Okay. (laughs) Evangelism is significantly redefined by the stark contrast of the sign that proves that what Christ the Lord, the Savior, is here. The sign of this declaration of good news is that Jesus, that Christ the Lord, the Savior, has been born and placed in a feeding trough. You know, in Isaiah 53, it speaks of declaring this good news. It says that the feet are beautiful that bring good news, that our God reigns. This picture of the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, in a feeding trough is unmistakably and sovereignly in stark contrast to Caesar Augustus and how his reign came to be and maybe how that was evangelized. Now, this was not a display of antagonism between Jesus and Rome necessarily, but a stark contrast. How the reign of God must begin for us. That this Savior, who is Messiah and Lord, is utterly unique. He's unlike the Roman Empire, Emperor, as we see. He's unlike the judges and the kings of Israel's past because of, well, who he inherently is. And he's bringing about his reign in this unexpected, surprising way. He is who Paul will proclaim to the Roman Empire as the Lord in, in Acts 28. He is the sovereign one who has willingly made himself subject, whom the angels are unmistakably identifying as the same God and Savior Mary praised in Luke 1. When the evangelism of the angels turns into worship of God, we get a surprising clue about where God's glory is manifested. But another military illustration of sorts. On May 6th, there was a little ceremony across the pond at Westminster Abbey. Everyone get the reference? Yeah. Okay. If you didn't, if anyone didn't get that, King Charles, or Charles III, I keep wanting to call him Prince Charles. He's been prince longer than I've been alive. <laughs> Charles III and Camilla were coronated as the king and, king and queen of England. Now, while my wife, Cindy, loves English history, I, I find myself mildly interested, quite frankly. But one part of the coronation day that I found compelling was the royal salute of the English troops. Did anyone see that on TV by chance? Did anyone watch the coronation? I, I didn't. I just saw this one part, so don't feel bad. So as King Charles, he stands there in his royal robe, his, his train of his robe. This thing is... I. I did the research on this. I guess it was 15 foot long. I don't know if this is the main one that he went into uh, Westminster Abbey, but at least that one was 15 feet long, and he was wearing a crown. Anyone want to guess how much the crown was worth? It was $57 million is what it was worth. At least that's what I found online, and then the internet never lies. 
but he's rendered honors by perhaps a thousand royal troops dressed in their traditional uniforms, including those, those tall bearskin hats. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen the... Anyone been to England? I haven't. I've just seen the, 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 changing, of the changing of the royal guard there with their bearskin hats. Um, but it was quite the sight to see. There's, there was probably about a thousand, was, would be my guess. And the English national anthem was played. Uh, but after that, in amazing unison, these troops uncovered... And what that means in military speak is you take off your hat. <laughs> they take off their hat in unison, and, the, and on the command gave three hip-hip hoorays. Now, a thousand troops, even on YouTube, screaming hip-hip hooray kind of hits your stomach. Um, it kind of, ooh, like that. One of the things that jars me a lot of times it, uh, is bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. It's kind of that same feeling, you know, you get, but, but this hip-hip hooray. If I was there, it would probably um, might, might make me tear up. I just... Just those sort of things just affect me that way. But this, here's this, this sign of uh, majesty, this, this uh, relay of, of um, honors due to this king, the, the uh, coronation of this king. Now, we could maybe surmise that Caesar Augustus would be due the maybe similar honors. I, I honestly don't know. Um, my guess is that his presence would be... Um, awesome to anyone who was a commoner, even to a soldier, and perhaps would be rendered honors. But far more glorious is the scene I will reread in verses 13 to 14. Because what do the angels do? And suddenly there appeared in, with the angel a, multiple of he, a multi, multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, when you see multitude of angels, uh, depending on the context, it could actually be translated an army of angels. The idea of host is actually like an army, it could be an army, an army of angels. But the angels are not here to bring about judgment. They aren't arriving as a conquering army, but to praise God for beginning salvation. Here, that phrase, glory to God in the highest, when we, and when we say glory to God, it's, it's not that we're giving God glory, it's that we're ascribing to him the fact that he is glorious. His entire being is glorious. We recognize who he is. Ascribing to God his character, what he's done, is, is worship, and this is what they're doing. Glory to God. You are glorious in what you are doing. And what is the glory that is happening? It's revealed in this event. The shepherds confirming the sign of the baby in the manger, they have the similar reaction. They ascribe glory back to God because what the angels had told them they would see, they indeed see. And those evangelized by the shepherds, they stand amazed with the experience of seeing angels. And what is so glorious? Where is God's glory? It is God. It is that God has come himself, humbled to infancy, to bring peace to those whom he finds favor on. Now, amidst the sovereignty of a great Roman empire that ascribes to itself the glory of Pax Romana, God's glory is demonstrated in how he is bringing about true peace. A peace that first and foremost reconciles God and man and ultimately to usher in his lasting peace, his shalom through the reign of Jesus, who here has entered the world in what might be described as an otherwise inglorious way. Yet in this manner, Jesus' entry 
entirely into our human condition has ensured what? That heaven and earth are permanently linked because God has come here. This is glorious. This is surprisingly glorious. This is why the Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, Apostle John, (laughs) writes that the word, what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory was bound up in God as a human. Now returning back to the text, there is a condition for peace with God. Now if you read different versions of verse 14, what you, what you notice, some will say that this peace comes upon those whom he is pleased, or sometimes the peace to whom uh, to people he favors. And these, these have a different emphasis. But, but whichever way it's translated, they both convey how it is God's action alone that brings about peace. And how is that peace uh, given to us? It's faith in this Son that's bringing peace alone, that we find peace. Because he is the only way in which favor is granted by God. But is a favor known as God's grace is unmerited that does not come by us going up to God because he has come down. Good news has arrived. Good news did not require our doing anything. He did not come by our efforts. He did not arrive in the temple as a result of the efforts of the earthly priest. He came down out of love as a helpless infant, swaddled in cloth, so in his own words, he might not be served, but what serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our response is to repent, to turn to Jesus, who is both Savior and Lord, to gain eternal life, eternal life that he purchased by dying on our behalf. For our sins, he started life in a feeding trough, swaddled in cloth, in order to suffer and die a detestable death on a Roman cross in our place, only to be wrapped in linen cloth and laid in a grave. He defeated the death that was due us by rising from the grave, So what do we do with Christmas in May? It's no longer winter. Literally, right now, it is no longer winter for us. Feels like it a little bit. Well, the answer to the two questions that we initially asked kind of provide us with a couple of key applications. First, the application of the question, who is really in charge, is this. I'm going to say this a couple of times. It's not really good English, but it sounded neat to me. (laughs) It is God who is really in charge. Let's really act like it. Let me say that again. It is God who is really in charge. Let's really act like it. I know this sounds simple, and it's meant to be. The heart of the response to the good news of Jesus Christ is just that, trust. He's got it. He's done it. The entire birth end has presented us with this proposition of whether we trust God's providence both in the big picture and in the everyday. God's plan to provide salvation, was, it wasn't thwarted by big picture of Roman's empire's rule or the small nuanced detail of no room at the end. No, it was quite literally really brought about by God's sovereign hand. John's, or Jesus' eternal kingship is a result of him submitting himself to the Father's will to become obedient through the mundane, everyday circumstances, and even subject to the Roman, uh, Roman ruling authority. In Philippians 2, the apostle writes this. 
adopt the same attitude as this, as that of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who existing what in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, and, but instead he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of, human, uh, the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is again. Jesus The story of Jesus' birth, his subsequent life and death, and the resurrection unmistakably demonstrate God's sovereign hand in accomplishing salvation. It's not just despite the circumstances, even the corruption of earthly rule, but through it. And we will not bring about God's salvation, bring it any closer, bring it any more sure by becoming so engrossed and tying to the control of things that we can't control. Because we can trust the one who ultimately does. It doesn't mean that we don't ought not care. It just means that how much we trust will be reflected in how we care. And at the same time, the application to the second question, where, do we, where, where is God's glory? Where is it in this story? And the application is God's glory really is in Jesus' humanity. Let's live like it. The prophet Habakkuk says that the outcome of God's salvation will result in the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as water covers a sea. Our, light, our salvation is tied eternally to Jesus' humanity because humanity matters to God's glory in eternity. And an earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory can only happen if there's an earth. We have resurrection and hope. We have physical hope in eternity. In Jesus, heaven and earth are eternally bound because the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, depends on his real physical life, his real physical death, his real physical resurrection, and his real physical return one day. For those that may not understand this, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is never less than saving us from the consequences of sin. The implications of what we are talking about today is we are hellbound. We are in a hellbound state outside of faith in Jesus Christ. We need rescue. But even more, this saving is also for, it's for eternal life, where the same Jesus will return again to truly reign physically with those who have God's peace by grace that is given to us by faith in Jesus, who is really like us. Yet because God's glory is really in Jesus' humanity, it really means our lives matter more now as well. It means the lives of our neighbors matter more now. The lives of your co-workers matter now. The lives of estranged loved ones matter more now. Those that we disagree with politically matter right now. And the thing I've had to wrestle with the last couple weeks has been a few week, difficult weeks at the jail. <laughs> Those incarcerated at the jail's lives matter more than I could ever understand because of Jesus Christ. They matter today. Well, today, the day before Memorial Day, as we rightly reflect, even celebrate Christmas in May, 
let's all agree at least to do this. Do what Mary did. Treasure these things in our heart. Meditate on the reality of God being in charge and the reality of God's glory in Jesus Christ, who is really human and really is God. If nothing else, pray with me that we might right now begin with this very thing that brings us God's favor. Trust Jesus, who for the joy set before him did all this for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you saw fit to send your son here. We don't have to go up. You came down. You made salvation sure because it's the salvation we need. God, I pray right now as we walk out into this world, God, that we are reflecting the depth of your love for us, God. As we look around us, that we reflect the love that you have for everyone we come in contact with, that everyone we see in a world so divided right now, in a country so seemingly divided right now, God. Let us have that mindset that Christ had. Not clinging to his privilege, but emptying himself on our behalf, the point of death, death on our behalf, and how glorious that is. For your sake we pray, amen.